You're listening to a sermon from our pastor, Brian Payne. We would love to have you worship God with us this Sunday at 1045 in the morning and at six o'clock in the evening as we make, nurture, and equip disciples of Jesus Christ in Auburn and throughout the world. Well, if you would turn your Bible to John chapter 12. John chapter 12, we're going to be looking at verses 32 to 36. Happy Memorial Day weekend to you. And this is a special time every year for us to remember the sacrifices that were made to secure earthly freedoms, such as the freedom of worship without concern for government intrusion. Of course, Memorial Day weekend is a time to remember those who died while serving our service, uh, our, our country in the armed forces. And so we're very grateful uh, for them and grateful for you. Uh, many of you have family members who died while in the military, and we're grateful for you as well. Uh, but we want to remember them even as we as we go to prayer this morning, because I do think everything in creation is an analogy. And because we have a Savior that that, that offered himself as the perfect sacrifice to secure our greatest freedom, freedom from the curse of the law, freedom to obey the law with gratitude, um, even the sacrifices that are made by others to secure lesser freedoms is, a, is an analogy of the kind of freedom that was ultimately secured by our Lord Jesus. And we saw symbolized today uh, in, in baptism. So let's pray as we come to our text and uh, remember uh, the great blessings that we have as, as citizens of this country. Father, thank you for your mercy and grace to us. Uh, we thank you uh, for the great liberty and freedom that was secured by the once for all sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ and his resurrection from the grave, and the gift of the spirit. But Lord, we're also mindful that we have blessings here that most people in history have not had. And one of those being the freedom of worship without the, the fear of government overreach. Uh, Lord, we thank you for the First Amendment. We thank you for all of these great freedoms. And we're reminded on this Memorial Day weekend of the countless lives that were given that we might have these freedoms. But we recognize Lord, even as we worship the living Christ today, those are common graces, and we're grateful for those common graces, and we're grateful for military, and we're grateful uh, for armed forces, but Lord, we ultimately worship the living Christ who, who secured our greater liberties and freedoms and, and who is our ultimate refuge. And Father, today as we come to this passage, we pray, Lord, that our love for the Lord Jesus, our faith in the Lord Jesus would, would be strengthened uh, by the ordinary means of preaching of the Word of God. And we ask these things in the matchless name of our Savior, King Jesus. Amen. So Brother Al and Hal and I were driving down the road the other day, and a car... Sounds like a joke, doesn't it? Um, but a car passed us, and the personalized tag read Simba. And Brother Al looked at me and commented, I think I know what their favorite movie is, which surprised me he knew what that movie was. Um, but it got me thinking 
about the movie The Lion King. Obviously, the, the driver of this car had either been named Simba by someone who loved the movie or perhaps they just had an inordinate love for this movie. Uh, but the analogies that are found in that movie which speak about an exalted king. Indeed, that, that movie, that story is about a, a king who would be exalted. No, no sooner has the movie begun than Simba is identified as the rightful heir to the throne. He's designated to the office by the baboon Rafiki. And when he's designated to that office, all the, the animals of the kingdom bow down to him. He's the future king. Then the rest of the movie, he's, he's taken into exile, but then we have this great homecoming where he comes to Pride Rock. But even when he arrives there, he must fight for his throne because it's been taken away by his evil uncle, Scar. Well, he, he triumphs over Scar. He defeats Scar. But even then, even though he's been designated as king, in order to be recognized and enthroned, he must ascend to Pride Rock. Pride Rock is the rightful abode of, of the king. And so he, he ascends to Pride Rock, and then you have this glorious roar, and all the lions of the kingdom recognize his, his rule, his authority, and his dominion. Well, that story is a, is a pale analogy of the story of stories. Do you realize that all four gospels, including the gospel of John, begin recognizing the Lord Jesus Christ as the rightful king? He is the king of kings, he is the Lord of Lords. And, and as early as chapter 1 in, in our gospel, Nathaniel, in chapter 1, verse 49, says, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. But the king must come and conquer. He must cast out the ruler of this world. And how will he do that? He will do it by taking our sin. We saw this last week. Uh, because the ground, the throne of the devil's dominion is our guilt. Take away the guilt and his throne is undermined. And he came and he took away our guilt. How? By becoming guilty for us. Our guilt was imputed to him. And then God judged the son as if he had lived our life. And then he raised him, reversing the verdict on our sin. But if we stop there, at that victory, the story remains incompleted. Jesus is still to be installed as king in the sense that he will be enthroned. And he will be enthroned at the right hand of the Father. And he will sit on that throne and he will receive all authority and dominion. In doing this, this king culminates but also continues his rule. You see, Jesus being lifted up, and this is the language we're going to see in our passage today. Jesus being lifted up begins with him being lifted up on a cross. And on that cross, it's as if he had lived our life. It's as if he had committed the sins that you have committed every day of your life. And God's judgment was poured out on the one 
who came as our substitute. So he is exalted in the sense that he's lifted up on the cross and then he is buried and then he's lifted up in resurrection on the third day. And then he'll be lifted up in ascension at the right hand of the Father. And then one day he's going to return. He's going to return in glory and he'll be lifted up in the consummation. Jesus being lifted up is about the triumph of the king. Indeed, that's what Jesus describes it as in our passage today. As we approach our text, keep in mind this whole process of being lifted up will begin in about two and a half days. Most scholars believe our present passage takes place on Tuesday afternoon, Friday being Good Friday. And so it's Tuesday afternoon, and Jesus is giving his last message to unbelievers. Do you realize starting in chapter 13, he will direct his focus to his disciples. But right now, he is giving his last word to unbelievers. That crowd that he's speaking here to is largely an unbelieving crowd. And what does he focus on? This is remarkable. He focuses on being lifted up, being exalted in an ironic way. In fact, what we're going to see, first of all, is that we see a significant implication of this exaltation in that because Jesus is lifted up, because he's exalted as king of the world and will be exalted, he is the only savior of the world. That's the first implication we see from our passage today. Notice with me in verse 32. He says, and when I am lifted up from the earth, of course, in verse 31, we saw last time that he has come to cast out the ruler of this world, and here we're seeing how he will do it. When I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. We have seen this language from Jesus throughout the Gospels or the Gospel of John. We saw it in chapter 8, verse 28. The first time we saw it was in John chapter 3, verse 14. When Jesus said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So Jesus is referring in referencing two Old Testament passages. You see, the Old Testament's about Jesus. And the first Old Testament passage he is referencing takes us all the way back to Numbers 21. It's a remarkable passage. But in Numbers 21, verse 6, it says, The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. Now, why did he do that? Judgment. And the serpent represents the one who, by his tempting Adam and Eve, brought sin into the world. And he sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. Judgment on their sin. The people came to Moses and said, we have sinned. You see, sometimes uh, we have to see the devastating effects of our sin before we're open, right, to salvation. We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord. And so they come to the, to the mediator. 
So Moses prayed for the people. Moses is a type, a picture of the one who would come. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. So he's to, to put that serpent on a pole and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. Do you get that? So this serpent is placed on a pole. It's lifted up, if you will. And those who see it and believe shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. And Jesus is referencing that when he says, when I be lifted up, Jesus is saying, that story's about me. Let me give you a couple of fancy words. It's about imputation and propitiation. Now, those are fancy words, but you need to know those words. Those words get at the heart of the gospel. Imputation. Those, those serpents on the pole represented the sins of the people being credited to those serpents. And, and those serpents have that sin credited to them points to the one who would have our sins imputed to him. And when our sins were imputed to him, he propitiated, he satisfied the wrath of God on our sin. In other words, being lifted up points us back to Numbers 21. But it's also a passage that looks back to one of the most important passages in the Bible on the one who would come as our suffering servant. Isaiah 52, listen to this, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. Do you hear that? And he shall be exalted. Now, there's an unfortunate chapter division there because that passage takes us into chapter 53 of Isaiah, which is the greatest passage in the Old Testament about the one who would bear our sins. Just a select few verses. Listen to this. Isaiah 53 verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. This is the one who would be high and lifted up. This is the one who would be exalted. Exalted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Verse 6. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 8. He was cut off. Out of the land of the living. He was exiled spiritually. Stricken for the transgressions of my people. Verse 10. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. That's referring to his resurrection. He shall prolong his days. The one who dies will have his days prolonged. Isaiah speaking about one who would be raised from the grave. Verse 12, he bore the sin of many. It's a remarkable passage because it begins with this promise that this suffering servant would be high and lifted up and would be exalted. You wouldn't expect Isaiah 53 after that. How would this servant be lifted up? How would this servant be exalted and at the same time bear our sins and be punished for our sins? Isaiah is speaking probably greater than he knew. It would come through the cross and through the resurrection. And note the fruit of that exaltation. 
He says, I will draw. I will draw all people to myself. That word draw is found throughout the, the gospel of John. I think it's found five times. Uh, even used literally of a, of a net being drawn out of the water. The fisherman's net. We saw in John chapter 6 that Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. It's the same word. Of course, this doesn't mean that everyone will be saved. He says, I will draw all men to myself. There's a large group of people in this world who will not be saved in the end. We've already seen that in John chapter 3, for instance. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. We saw then that belief and obedience travel together. We're not, we're not saved by our works, but our works are the fruit of our saving faith. And he says, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So what does Jesus mean here when he says, if I be lifted up, I will draw all peoples to myself. Well, it means that all ethnic, all ethnicities, every tribe, every tongue, all nations will have representatives who are drawn to Jesus because of his exaltation. In fact, this passage began with the Greeks coming to Jesus. We wish to see Jesus. That's what began this conversation. So it works this way. As sinners, unbelievers, hear of the exalted Christ, the one who took our sin and was exalted over sin, death, and the devil, the Holy Spirit convinces us of our sin and misery. We behold the resurrected Christ, the one who took the cross, and the Holy Spirit convinces us of our sin and misery. The Holy Spirit shows us, that should have been me. The sins he bore on the cross, that should have been me. And so he convinces us of our sins and misery. He enlightens our minds in the knowledge of Christ. We begin to see Jesus for who he is. The exalted King, the exalted Christ, the Lord, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Son of Man, my prophet, my priest, my king. And then my will is renewed, and I am persuaded and enabled to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to me in the gospel. That's how it works. If I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself because the work has been completed. But let me give you another secondary implication of that. The reason most of us are here is because we have been drawn to Christ through his exaltation. But now that the work is complete in the objective sense, we have the hope that we take that gospel to the streets. All the work's been done. We're just role players at this point. We don't have the responsibility to draw sinners. Jesus says he's the one that does that. All we have to do is share the gospel of the exalted Christ, and he does the work. Don't you believe that he's still a saving God? He saved you. If you really believe that, wouldn't it inform your faithfulness in evangelism and mission? 
Because he's the one that does all the work. He finished the work of atonement. And through his exaltation, he is the one who does the drawing. All I have to do is talk about what he has accomplished. That's my only job. I'm just a role player. But we have the hope. Because he has been lifted up, he will draw all men to himself. If you believe that gospel and you believe the power of that gospel, you will begin praying, Lord, give me an opportunity this week to share that gospel. In fact, it will make you more missional. You'll want to take that gospel to the nations because Jesus says this gospel is not just for Americans. This gospel is for all peoples. Indeed, we have seen the first implication of his exaltation because Jesus is lifted up. He's the only savior of the world. Second part of our passage tells us that because Jesus is lifted up as the king of the world, the world is accountable to him. The world is accountable to him. Look with me in verse 34. So the crowd answered him. This is largely an unbelieving crowd. We'll see that next time. In fact, verse 37 says, they still do not believe in him. So this is largely an unbelieving crowd. The crowd answered him, we have heard from the law. The law there representing the whole Torah, the Old Testament rather. We've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? There they must recognize that when he says he must be lifted up, he's referring about to his death. Who is this Son of Man? So they were correct that indeed the Bible, the Old Testament, gives us text that says that once Messiah comes, he would remain as God's chosen Messiah forever. He would have a kingdom that would endure. So they were correct. So for instance, I think they're probably musing on Daniel chapter 7. It's one of the most important passages in the Old Testament with regard to understanding who the Messiah was. And in Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14, here's what the prophet writes. There came one like a son of man. You see, they're using that son of man language. That's why I think they're, they're parking here. There came one like a son of man, and he, he came to the ancient of days, that is the father, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. You see, they're, they're focusing on the victory here. That all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. Again, Jesus has said, I will draw all men to myself. And, and they are inferring that this will be all peoples and nations and languages. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will, shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. And so they were focusing on the passages that spoke of the Messiah's victory and his enduring kingdom, while at the same time ignoring passages like Isaiah 53 that tells us we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And because they did not see their deepest problem being their sin, their deepest problem was Rome in their estimation. 
a suffering Messiah who would take their sins did not fit their theology. And so just like many liberals and moderates today, the the texts that do not fit their preconceived notion of who God should be to them, they just kind of edited it out. They cut those words out of their Bible. And given their superficial reading of the Old Testament, they asked Jesus this question, who is the Son of Man? Who is the Son of Man? And Jesus' response is quite informing, I think. Look with me in verse 35. So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, Believe in the light that you may become sons of light. So again, let's go back to their question. Who is this son of man? Jesus appears to not even acknowledge their question. He doesn't answer their question. And here's why. They had enough evidence. They had seen enough. They had heard enough. Their issue was not a lack of revelation. There may be some here today. You were raised in the church. And now you're an adult. And you know. And you have heard the gospel. So that if an unbeliever were to come to you and say, what is the gospel? You could tell them. But you have never bowed the knee to Jesus. That's where these people are. They don't need their questions answered. They have enough answers. They have seen, they have heard enough. Their real issue, and we can take this all the way back to chapter 3, verse 19, is this. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world. The people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. That's their problem. They don't need their questions answered. They have enough answers. They just don't like the answers because they recognize what it will do to their moral lives, their private lives. I'm reading Pilgrim's Progress again, and I just got to the point where Pilgrim is asked by charity, where are your, your wife and your, do, do you have a wife? He says, yeah, I have a wife. He says, where's your wife? Do you have children? Yes, I have four children. Where are your children? And, and Pilgrim, who's on this pilgrimage to the celestial city, he tears up. He, in fact, it says he cries. And here's what he said. My wife didn't want to make the journey with me because she was afraid of losing this world. That's horrifying language. She was afraid of losing this world. And get this, and my children were given to the foolish delights of youth. 
That's why they weren't with the pilgrim on the way to the celestial city. The world was too important to his wife and the foolish delights of youth were too important to his children. And that's why they were not on their way with, with Christian on the pilgrimage. Indeed, this is the issue. Jesus knew that. He knew that they knew that he was Messiah in a very superficial sense, but they did not like its implications. Of course, the lie here is Jesus himself. He's already said in John chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. I think Paul is very helpful in helping us understand this in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6, a very important passage. For God who said light shall shine out of darkness. So there's, he's hearkening back to creation when there's darkness on, you know, and, and there's no creation. And he said, God said, uh, spoke light out of darkness. He says he has shown in our hearts, this same God, to give the light of the knowledge of God, the glory of God, in the face of Christ. Jesus is the light of the world because we come to know the true and living God through him. This is not a, a derived light. This is an original light. Jesus is the light of the world. And do you see how significant this is what, with what Jesus is saying here? The knowledge of God, the glory of God is found only in the face of our Lord Jesus Christ who is the light of the world. And given that reality, these are some bone-chilling words here in verses 35 and 36. These are the final words Jesus speaks to a lost and dying world before he sets his face towards Calvary, which tells us these are important words. Of course, for Jesus to say, the light is among you for a little while longer, that refers to his departure, right? It refers to his cross, and then it will refer to his ascension, and he is saying, and then you will have no longer the opportunity to see him face to face. But I also think this is referring to a scenario that will unfold spiritually for the rest of church history. Jesus is saying there will come a time when it's too late to repent. Now, this is not a hellfire and brimstone pulpit, but that's a reality. There will come a time for every unbeliever who resists the light, there will come a time it's too late to repent. And I want you to listen. Those of you who have not yet bowed the knee, for those of you who have not yet trusted in the Son, you will not have that opportunity forever. That's what Jesus is saying here. And so here is a warning, but also an invitation. Jesus is giving a twofold invitation slash warning to every unbeliever here. These words are spoken primarily to unbelievers. And here's what he says, verse 35. The light is among you for a little while. Walk while you have the light. Walk while you have the light. Make progress towards him. 
The second warning slash invitation is in verse 36. While you have the life, believe in the light. Believe in the light. What does it mean to believe in the light? Well, this saving faith is what that means. And, and there's three parts to, to saving faith. Uh, we, this is something that the, the reformers hammered out for centuries to overcome this notion that you could just have a, an intellectual grasp of Jesus as fire insurance and then live your life as a hellion. No, the reformers recognize that we're holistic beings and that what we believe affects our will and our affections and our heart. So I've, I've alliterated this to help you remember it. There's three parts to saving belief. First of all, comprehension. You must comprehend certain things about Jesus. Jesus is who he has revealed himself to be in the scriptures. You don't get to pick who Jesus is. There's, there's been movies where someone says, I, I prefer the baby Jesus over the Lord Jesus. Well, you don't get to pick. So you must comprehend certain truths about Jesus, that he is the son of God, that he is the only substitute for sinners, that he came and lived the life we could not live. You have never lived one moment the life he lived every moment of his life incarnate. And that this son of God went to the cross and he took full, full bore the wrath of God for our sins he went to hell on the cross. Not literally. He took the hell of judgment. And then he was buried and he was raised, reversing the record for those who would trust him. You must believe that. You must comprehend that. You must comprehend he's the light and everything else is darkness. So the first C in saving belief is comprehension. The second C is conviction. You must, what you comprehend, you have the conviction that it's true. That is the only truth that matters. And then the third C is commitment. You commit yourself to him. You throw yourself on the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. You flee to him as your refuge from the storm of God's wrath. That's what Jesus means when he says, you must believe in the light. Here's the question. Do you believe in the light? It's a question for every person here. Are all three components of that saving belief found in you? It's the most important question you can answer this morning. Remember, these are the last words of challenge to unbelievers. This tells us this is important. Of course, there's also here this invitation to walk in the light we know from 1 John that to walk in the light is to abide in the light. One of the evidences that you've actually been saved and are trusting in the light is that you abide in him. And you seek to um, flee everything that is darkness because he's the light. You reject everything that causes darkness to rear its ugly head. So to believe in the light... And the walk in the light is not radical Christianity. It's Christianity 101. Jesus is describing a Christian here, a Christ follower, or as, to use his language, 
a son of light, a daughter of light, a child of light. Of course, we're not the source of the light. We're like the moon that reflects the light. How do we know the moon is there? Because it reflects the light of the sun. That's its job. If you are in Christ, you reflect his light. Because light always overcomes the darkness. So back to the question, who is this son of man? And his answer is not what we expected. His answer to the question, who is this son of man? Believe in the light. Walk in the light. And you will know who he is. That's his answer. You'll know who he is. And in so doing, you will become a child of light. One who is no longer content with artificial lights. One who is no longer content with darkness. This is an appeal to everyone here. Most of you are believers. And it's an appeal to you as well. Is to believe even more in the light. Because your capacity to believe is like a muscle. It is strengthened by the ordinary means of grace. So in your individual walk, every day, avail yourself to the means of grace by opening your Bible and praying the scriptures and communing with the living God through the Son of God by the Spirit of God. And then weekly gathering as a corporate people of God by the corporate means of grace. This is primarily aimed at the unbeliever. And there are unbelievers here. There will come a day when you will not have the opportunity. How many sermons do you need to hear? How many times do you need to come to church before you submit to the light? There may come a day when it's too late. Indeed, notice how this passage ends it is horrifying at the end of verse 37 when Jesus had said these things he departed and he hid himself from them he hid himself from them I believe this to be a dramatic illustration of the passing of the light an acted out parable by Jesus of the warning that he just gave. He hid himself from them because he knew he would not, they would not respond to the light. There comes a point for every unbeliever, persistent unbelievers, when the gospel is no longer available to believe. It may happen at your death, but it will happen at some point. Or it may be that you have resisted the light so long that your heart is hardened to it. You have been given over. There's a, that's a common judgment. Read Romans 1 sometime. And this is Jesus' admonition to you. Let me close today with a sobering anecdote that I think helps drive this home. I once heard Joel Beakey, who is a theologian and professor of a, of a seminary. He told a story of visiting a cemetery in New Jersey, Tenet, New Jersey. And at this cemetery was buried a young man named Gilbert Tenet. 
Gilbert Tennant was the nephew of another Gilbert Tennant, one of Jonathan Edwards' best friends during the Great Awakening, First Great Awakening. One of the great preachers. And his nephew had sat under his preaching his entire life. He'd been in a gospel church his entire life. But he resisted the light. But he became very successful. He became a doctor. It looked like uh, resisting the light wasn't a big deal. I mean, he's still having a pretty successful life. Maybe the light's all, it's not all cracked up to be. But at 28, Gilbert Tennant, the nephew of the great preacher Gilbert Tennant, was treating a patient. He hadn't even turned 28. He was still 27, close to 28. And he contracted the sickness of his patient. And he died. And Joe Beakey said that he went to see the tomb because it's a well-known tomb because of its sobering epitaph. And here's what it said. Here lies the mortal part of Gilbert Tennant. In the practice of physician, he was successful and beloved. So here's a man who clearly has had a successful life. He was a, he was a doctor. They don't just hand out medical degrees. He was successful. He was beloved. He was well-known in the community. Young and in the highest bloom of life, death found him. Hopefully in the Lord. Now those are horrifying words. That his family would bury him and not know he was a Christian. Hopefully in the Lord. That's on his tombstone. Hopefully in the Lord. But, oh reader, again, this is on his tombstone. Oh reader, those who are reading the tombstone. Had you heard his last testimony, you would have been convinced of the extreme madness of delaying repentance. You would have been convinced of the extreme madness of delaying repentance. We don't know what he was saying on his dying bed, but evidently he was demonstrating as he's dying the foolishness of rejecting the light. A man who had been under Bible preaching his entire life. A successful man, a beloved man, but a man in torment because he had delayed repentance. Hopefully he was in the Lord, but his family didn't know. And this is a word, a last word from Jesus to every unbeliever here this morning. Come to the light while the light is still available. There's coming a day when it won't be available. Come to the light. As Adam and the musicians come forward, want to give you an opportunity. We realize that walking a few feet down an aisle is not the steps of salvation. We're not 
sacramentalist here, you could be saved right there in your seat. But maybe you have questions. What does it mean to come to the light? What does it mean to trust in Jesus? Maybe you just want us to pray for you. But don't leave here rejecting the light. Jesus could not be more clear than if he had spoken this audibly. This is a word to every person here today who has never trusted in the light of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can do that today. All you have to do is recognize I, I am dark. My soul is darkened by sin. I deserve the judgment that Jesus took at the cross. But I believe he took that judgment for me. And I believe he was raised from the grave for me. And I am going to commit my life to the light of the world this morning. Won't you come to him this morning as we stand and as we sing? Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org slash contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.